Hello, welcome to Reproducibility. I'm Sam Parsons. I'm joined by Amy Auburn and Sophia Cruel. <laughs> Almost there. <laughs> so close. So right, close. come on. Just say Cuvée. Cruvel. Cruvel. <laughs> we'll get there at some point. We'll, we'll get there. By week, by week mm. eight, we'll get there. Or I'll just always go, Cruvel. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you uh, could have a pre-recorded Cruvel. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Just before I start, I just need to hear it a few times. Yeah. Right, okay, and then I'll butcher it and then we'll get hold of um, So we are talking today about our first um, reproducibility journal club. Um, underneath the heading of the problem defined the first paper not well it is also our first journal club our first but it's also the first paper of our first the journal first club. paper of the first journal club yes it's um, the first in all of the ways every first it's also the first yes. paper <laughs> that this is what i realized yesterday it's the first paper of in the whole of nature human behavior because it's like page one of issue one so i think like that's quite a cool thing as well actually it, it says article number 21 i know i'm kind of confused about that but I, can you can oh, we oh maybe it's because they because they, they published it online but then they had one um like they, they published lots of papers online but then they didn't publish all of them in or they had 21 the submissions and they rejected the rest. Huh. i don't know <laughs> because, because this is the best um so we are talking about um a manifesto for reproducible science um from marcus Manifo, brian nozek Dorothy Bishop. Are you going to go through Button. the whole I'm thing? I'm going to go through all of them. Uh, Christopher Chambers. We should do it like a football um, song. Marcus. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Brian. Does <laughs> it? <laughs> no. Um, well, um, you can... Also, Natalie Percy Dessert, Bruce Simonson, uh, EJ Wagenmakers, uh, Jennifer Ware, and John Ioannidis. Ioannidis? Ioannidis. I, I think it's Ioannidis. I think I, I probably butchered quite a few of those names. I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, everyone. I'm certain I'm going to do that to everyone, so don't feel singled out. Because <laughs> um, um, Sam is a Brit and Brits because, do that. Because I am a, a Brit and generally we're assholes. I just didn't want to single out Marcus as being the only person on this paper. I'm trying to give everyone credit. I think <laughs> for context, for uh, Sam's self-flagellation uh, <laughs> there, we should mention that we just recorded 20 minutes of, no, 30 minutes of this and uh, it all got lost. <laughs> yeah, so our um, microphone just died and we didn't notice because we were having so much fun. Um, and now we're going to have fun again, but it's, it's with... In a, a natural bit, way. In a supernatural yeah. way that doesn't sound... In a supernatural uh, way. <laughs> and we're right back spinners. into the topic. We're going to start talking about the parallel. Prefigures. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so we learned our lesson, and, you know, if any of you decide that you want to start a podcast, do check on whether <laughs> there are batteries in your microphone. Um, but there were batteries. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there were the wrong. Well, there were the right batteries at the wrong time. Um, anyway, let's start talking about this. Let, let's talk about the paper. Um, okay, so to to set the scene, um, there's uh, an analysis that's estimated that eighty five percent of biomedical research efforts are wasted, um, and also ninety percent of respondents to a survey in Nature, a good few years ago now, um, agreed that there is a reproducibility crisis going on. Um, so I guess to start off with, we should probably clarify what the reproducibility crisis yeah. is. Um, I still think that these numbers are quite depressing. Hmm. Well, not oh, yeah. the 90%. Like, it's good that people agree, but this, it kind of, I guess, um, I knowing how many people um, don't really buy into 
quite a lot of this. I wonder what, how much agreement you needed to voice to get into this 90%. Because you could say, oh, there is a representative crisis, but it's all bollocks. Or, you yeah. know, it's all, you know, we just need to change small things. Um, so good number. Um, I question whether it's really that many. Um, but also the kind of 85% of biomedical research efforts are wasted. Like, that's that's quite a lot for, you know, this being down to public spending and, you know, actually taking people's tax money for this. That's like 85% goes down the drain. Well, and also treating people um, mm. based on these results. Like it's quite it's quite scary that like yeah on the one hand we're we're wasting public money, and on the other hand also in sort of in well, at least in the biomedical um, mm. biomedical fields I guess um, we're also then maybe treating people in a way that doesn't help them. Yeah, or you, it's like, I think it's quite interesting that pharma companies have said that they don't actually kind of use basic research anymore because they just can't trust it anymore. You're kind of there being like, wow, is this something we should really invest in? And um, Big Pharma I, thinks we're bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, How bad do you have to be? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think this is something where we often kind of try to not think about this because naturally you want to think that, you know, oh, my science is fundable and I'm really trying my best and science is good because I'm a scientist and I think we should be spending money on this. But if you take these numbers and other things that we know kind of on face value, you could ask yourself um, whether, you know, this funding is is right and we definitely need to clean up our, our shit, you know, so that we won't be the generation of scientists where people just decide to be anti-science and we can't really do anything against it. Yeah, I think um, kind of raise a point there that we want to to trust everyone. We want to. I mean, I think in in my heart of hearts, I do believe that people genuinely think that they're doing decent research. I think there's such an element of fooling oneself that comes into this, and I think it's more likely that that's causing this wastage rather than it being that people are actively going out to to ruin things, mm. which I think is, is worth pointing out as well in the, the the overall tone of this paper isn't to point out that a huge proportion of researchers are horrible people and they're not doing things correctly so much as to point out that there are researcher degrees of freedom and co uh, cognitive biases that come into play in the way that we interpret others and our own research and data. Um, yeah, I think they, 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 they do a really good job of... Um, of sort of focusing on that, that it's it's not people's intentional faults. It's yeah. um, I mean, as they I mean, they, they end with the the Feynman quote, um, of the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool, right? I think like that's a really good way of ending that paper to just like make make it very clear that, um, they're I mean like yeah they they are focusing on the problem and and then, sort of the things that we need to tackle in order to change things yeah. to, to sort out this mess. Yeah, and I think it's it's really is a manifesto that people can sign up to because it it doesn't blame kind of people. It, it just it goes through the problem in a very nice way, and then it really goes through all these possible solutions. And I guess this is why we put it in week one because it kind of touches base on so many things that we'll be talking about. So we'll be trying now to kind of cover loads of different things. So if things <laughs> are unclear, we'll hopefully get back to it. But I think it's, it, it is a really great paper, just 
because of its clearness, its non-judgmentalness, but also because of like the whole scope of these amazing experts all coming together and thinking, you know, what are the key things that we could do better um, yeah. that, you know, wouldn't, you know, be difficult to implement, but isn't aren't impossible to implement. In that. Yeah. And, and how could anyone disagree with any of the things that they're saying? I mean, I'm very biased here, but like, really, mm. how? Well, <laughs> I think I, they're, they're, yeah. they're not, they're not, they're not making bizarre claims. They're, they're, they're showing the problems and they're different, different solutions. And they're, they're pointing out what science should be, right? Almost on first principles, and what aspects of science should be in a certain way. And they're not currently in that certain way. And here's yeah. things that can be done to. And that's that. your favourite figure ever, <laughs> the hypothetical <laughs> deductive circle. <laughs> um, so before that, should we talk about creativity and the confirmatory exploratory analysis? Well, I think it, it comes or? it comes into this figure, doesn't okay, it, cool. as well? Because um, the way we normally teach that how science is, or the way that we understand science when we start off in our undergrads, or when we explain it to relatives is that it is this cycle of, you know, you generate a hypothesis and you have this idea of what might happen and you get, you design a really good study, you collect the data, you analyze the data, you test your hypotheses and you you're, might be proven, you might be disproven and that then changes the knowledge base and that helps progress society both in maybe having some sort of knowledge output there and then or feeding back into, you know, hypothesis generation. Um, and so naturally this is kind of how things are supposed to be. Um, if the purpose is to accumulate knowledge. <laughs> if the as they say in the paper, if the purpose is to accumulate knowledge, and I guess what we'll do now is to kind of try to tease that apart and why, you know, because we could end the podcast here and say, and this is the end, you know, this is how it's supposed to be. But now but it comes act two. All of the red things in this in this circle. Yeah. All of the red things. All of the red. So, um, and I think that's where creativity or how they they at the very beginning of the problem section where they say, you know, we're often misled by our tendency to see structure and randomness. Mm. This does play into this cycle and mm. and starts showing us that we we can be biased and this can cause us to to stray away from this cycle or to, to do things that, that we shouldn't actually be doing, but seem right or seem kind of logical at, at that. Yeah. And so yeah, should we go through them one by one? Yeah. Cool, who's starting? Um, well, okay, so I'll, I can start. <laughs> so the first thing obviously is to generate hypothesis uh, and specify it clearly. Um, which sounds like it should be an, a relatively easy thing to do, but um, yeah, well, as they say here, so the problem is that people fail to control for biases. And we actually earlier <laughs> um, disagreed on what we thought this was. Um, like what, what, yeah. what yeah, I guess there's, there's several plausible things yes. that could come into Yeah, that. I was very confused because you kind of don't think that bias plays into actually generating a hypothesis and when I was reading it now for the 10th time it was like what what does it actually mean and then I asked Sam and Sam said dot 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 <laughs> so so I view that as um so one example would be if you're generating a hypothesis that is based on results that you either knowingly or unknowingly are based on biased results within the literature so for example in a a clinical trial of a new intervention or a 
relatively well used intervention that has very mixed results. If you present that as a, this is a very viable treatment, so we're going to test it in this circumstance, then you're sort of ignoring a lot of the other research that says that that might not actually be the case. So you've already got this inbuilt bias into just the hypotheses that you're wanting to test in the first place. And I think Dorothy Bishop once made a really interesting point in our actual like in-person journal clubs about how um, how we often fool ourselves. You know, how often do you have people saying, "Oh yeah, this method doesn't work all the time, but it'll work for me." You know, or like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, this is not the best study, but like it'll be okay." Because like scientific homeopathy. <laughs> yeah, because you kind of feel like you you know, or you you'll just be lucky, and and you you we yeah we have this biased view of previous literature and previous success rates. Yeah. Yeah, but I actually, so coming back to the, uh, the circle, I actually, when I read failure to control for bias, I thought um, this was bias in the way that if you specify a hypothesis, not if you basically don't really specify it, but just to keep it very broad, then um, you give yourself so much space to accidentally um, hark later on. Harking, <laughs> should explain this. <laughs> so hypothesizing after results are known. Um, so if, you, if your hypothesis is, is really vague, then even if you specify it in advance, um, at the end of it, you might um, still hark, um, mm. even without knowing it, because again, you're the easiest person to fool. So that's what I thought um, failing to control the bias meant. Yeah, and I feel like in the last weeks, I've really experienced this firsthand because I, I've been working on this project where we have two exploratory studies and we're using large scale data, and there'll be a new wave release, and this wave was released three weeks ago, probably now. And so we did a pre registration beforehand. And I thought this was like the best pre-registration I've ever done. And it went in so much detail and I put it on OSF and I used a template and I really worked through things bit by bit by bit. Um, and now after I've looked at the hypotheses, um, I've started writing up the paper and I went back and I actually realized that one of my hypotheses was like super ambiguous in that we're looking at, so it was something along the lines of, it was the fifth one and it was, like when we include controls in our analyses, the effects will become smaller than if we do not include controls. Um, and I thought that was really clear that, you know, we're probably gonna get a negative effect and the effect will probably get net less negative if we include controls. But actually you could also interpret it that it will become smaller and that it will become more negative. Um, and yeah, even though I thought I tried to really specify my hypotheses, um, you know, they were still ambiguous and very open to bias. Oh yeah. I mean, I've seen an example um, in the recent few months where you had a, a pre-registration that specified a essentially a clinical outcome hypothesis, whereas the um, clinical trials registry predicted or described this as being a feasibility trial. So already there, you've got the potential for the researchers to go one or two very different directions in how they're, they're describing their study because they haven't specified the hypotheses as clearly as, mm. as they perhaps should and across different, different mediums. Yeah. And um, the, the pre-registration is really there for us to, you know, this is often either on OSF or on other sites or just personally kind of putting things on paper and saying, you know, this is exactly the hypotheses I want to test. This is the method I'm going to use. This is the analyses I'm going to do. And this will should help against both controlling for bias and you know that we test those hypotheses that we actually set out to test, 
and should help against. <laughs> yeah. I think we should. I don't know. I think um, we should probably explain funds. Yeah, 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 yeah. I tried. I was trying to explain pre-registration, but I probably didn't do a good job. No, no. I think like, I think like you did, but I think I think we I think we just need to like point. To, I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So that that was me explaining <laughs> what pre-registration <laughs> was. Um, and it's generally quite good because yeah, it helps us fight this bias, but it also helps against p hacking, which will come kind of across a bit later in looking at the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess the second stage within this figure is in, in designing the study, which should, which for the start you can eliminate bias by actually making sure that your design can test your hypotheses. <laughs> which we kind of see often maybe isn't the case. In some cases, the hypotheses aren't falsifiable, so no design is going to actually help us answer, answer the question. Um, the main point that, um, that's raised in the paper is of low statistical power. I'm going to try and describe statistical power well. <laughs> um, so statistical power um, is the... I guess the probability that you should be able to find a significant effect if it exists, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So I mean, you, yeah. So you calculate it before you do a study. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of, of course, the a priori. No, but that's yeah. That's set statistical yeah. power, which I guess is also something that comes into when you talk about like sort of the difference between mm. <laughs> a priori and post hoc power. Yeah. Um, so statistical power is important so that you can actually gain meaning from your results, for one thing. Um, low statistical power also increases the, um, the occurrence of false positives, um, which we'll actually well, talk and, about. And false negatives as well, right? And false negatives. Because, I mean, you just, if you have, mm -hmm. 20, if you, if you have like 20% um, probability to find a true effect, if it's there, that's, yeah. Like, for the like, effect like, size that you're looking at. Yeah, for yeah, so the effect, then, then like, what you're getting is most likely just noise in mm. either direction. Yeah. Well, it's it's like you know if you if you I guess it's kind of how good your magnifying glass is, isn't it? It's like <laughs> if you have a really if you have a really low powered study, the effect might be there, but you can't see it, and you yeah. might be be looking at dirt and saying, oh no, it's actually there, while having high power. So that often means recruiting more participants just gives you a better tool, yeah. and so it is just really important in in just creating research that. That progresses science, progresses knowledge, because then and it's not wasting resources. It's not it's wasting not resources, resources either. Yeah. So also for just to make the really obvious point again, low power. Also, if you find a statistically significant result, if you have low power, it doesn't actually mean that you've magically found a real effect because that would survive even if you don't have that many participants. It we is. do talk about this we in do. in another week. Um, <laughs> with spoilers. Spoilers. Yeah, we'll talk about this more in another week. So perhaps not going into too much yeah. detail right now. But suffice to say that low statistical power across um, psychological science, and especially which be our focus, um, has potentially resulted in in part of the replication crisis in the you don't have a precise enough magnifying glass to be able to mm. find the result in the first place. So therefore, how can you possibly replicate, i.e. find the same effect again? And Kate Button, who's on this paper, has a really good paper on that 
I said paper twice in one sentence, yeah. um, called Power Failure, which I think also has a really good name. Um, so if, you, if you're interested, have a look at that. And okay. it will be in the show notes. In the show notes. <laughs> like the figure as well, um, yep. because that nice. figure is, is really good. And I think, yeah, like, like Sam, I think I saw this figure before I've ever mm. read the paper. Mm. It's just yeah, been kind so. of key in, in this debate because it really visualizes how many problems there are and where they are. Okay, shall we go on? Um, conduct study and collect data. So this is normally what if you're a PhD student or master student or undergrad, that's what you're going to be doing um, and recruiting participants. And they put down poor quality control. Um, I don't know. I guess that's quite obvious what that is. Poor quality control. You probably need things like blinding, counterbalancing. Well, counterbalancing yeah. is kind of part of the design process, but yeah. But then I guess you can you can also not counterbalance very well mm. when you're actually collecting the data as well. Like you you could assign one RA to one condition, one RA to another condition, and then you've sort of eliminated some of your counterbalancing because you've introduced mm. another um, possible contaminator. Yeah, and I think it's also um, kind of positive controls in trying really figuring out are people um, actually, do, is your manipulation working? Are people paying attention? And I often, when I was designing studies, so I, I do a lot of data analysis now, like large scale data analysis, so I didn't, don't need to worry about this anymore. But I remember that I would put in questions like, did you actually read the question? And I'd be like, oh, I really hope people won't take that because I, I really, you know, I have a limited amount of money. I don't want to exclude like all of these participants um, for not reading the questions. And and as a good scientist, I should have been like, oh, I'm really glad I'm putting in this question <laughs> because I can exclude all the participants who who aren't reading. But you know, as as an as a day to day scientist, you naturally don't want to test like a hundred people and you throw out thirty or something. Yeah. So yeah. And it's a bit of a problem, so say, for example, in the, the larger EEG studies or ERP studies where you, you could collect an awful lot of participants and then throw out 30% because of artefacts, which mm. you could either include them and introduce a lot of extra noise in your research, or you could exclude them in certain ways that maybe aren't appropriate. So I think that's part of where this quality control comes in is also mm. the, the data preparation um, and participant or trial exclusion. And talking about data preparation, um, that's probably kind of already into analyzing data and testing hypotheses, yeah. and that's where we get into p-hacking and hawking land, so I guess we need to cover <laughs> both. Um, I don't know, which one should we start with? I guess we've defined hawking, but we haven't really talked about it in such detail, have we? Um, we can talk about it in more detail. I think probably first it's good to clarify the difference between confirmatory and exploratory analysis. Um, so my super simplistic interpretation is that confirmatory analysis is your analysis that you have clearly specified your hypothesis beforehand, whereas exploratory is, well you haven't for a start, but essentially you've run an analysis and you've taken the result and then interpreted it, is part of my... Well interpretation of that or maybe not interpreted it but you don't necessarily have a clearly defined hypothesis well in a way like exploratory research is what you do when you don't really know what you're doing yet right mm -hmm. so as in like you 
you want you want to investigate something, but nothing has been done in this thing before. Yeah. You don't really know what 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 can what your hypotheses should be. So you collect some data and explore that, and then based on that, um, the, the things you f you find there, but you know, in that exploration, based on that, you can then run a study that can confirm what yes. is confirm what, mm. what, you're, what you're finding. I think that's um, what's important is the yeah. the distinction between the two is quite hypothesis. I think yeah, the hypothesis generation and the hypothesis testing. You know, a yeah. exploratory study is a good tool to generate hypotheses, but you shouldn't really publish it there. Because you're not testing it. Because you haven't yes. tested it yet. Or at least publish it under the heading of exploratory research as opposed to claiming that it's confirmatory. <laughs> and that's hawking. <laughs> that brings us to hawking because yay <laughs> because what what like a lot of people do and, and it's still, you know, common practice what was commonly taught is that you know, you, you look at the data and then you look at, oh, you know, what sort of hypotheses might have been good to, to run or what sort of hypotheses are successful. And then you write the paper as if, you know, the hypotheses were, were clear beforehand. Because we're so good at predicting things. <laughs> yeah, because we're scientists and we naturally know things beforehand. And I, yeah, it's it's not... Yeah, like, but basically, like, I mean, exposure research in itself isn't bad. It's very useful because, you need, you, need, you know, I mean, I guess what people... You know, save up sort of creativity, right? Like you want to be able to um, find new things. It's just important to make that distinction very, very clear. And it's not yeah. currently, um, not not even necessarily because people are doing that on purpose, um, right? Because I mean, I think I think that's something that, that this paper stresses um, quite a lot as well. That um, these are not things that people need to be doing intentionally. It's just kind of in, built into the system and. Well, and they're taught, like, yeah. uh, I, I think this was really sticks in my mind from our journal club, is that we got a really diverse range of people, from people who already buy into all of this, to people who are kind of starting to think about these things, and a PhD student came who's kind of in the middle of a PhD, and she said that, you know, this hawking was still being taught by senior people in our department for, in our graduate inductions, you know, that you come to Oxford, and in your first week, somebody says, you know, you analyze your data and, th and then you need to tell a good story and you need to yeah. make sure that the story is cohesive, coherent, you know, that it all makes sense and it all supports this one hypothesis or two hypotheses that you'll then decide are the good ones to talk about. So that your reader can easily understand your story. <laughs> yeah, story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really don't understand the storytelling thing. It's, it, it, I, yeah. Well, it I, comes purely from the, like, that's not part of the, you're generating knowledge kind of aspect of this paper. At that point, you're generating a story for publication. Yeah, exactly. Um, but how can anyone, how can anyone but because the, the think paper, about this and, and see, like, oh, yeah, storytelling, well, that's my job as a scientist. I don't, because you, you don't see it as a story, you see it as a truth, as a person doing that sort of action. You say, you know, you have a result and it all of a sudden it starts to make sense that and you're starting to see patterns and you start seeing that there's some parts of the literature that you can cherry pick and then it, it makes it, it makes sense and i think as we we as scientists we're always there and we should, should be super you know we we should have certainty and we shouldn't have uncertainty and i think if in this kind of hawking world everything's super certain you know because you can choose the literature that you cite after you have the data. You can choose the hypotheses after you have the data. You can actually write a really consistent account of what is happening, but it's not 
it's not the actual thing that's yeah. actually happening and that's the problem um but naturally if you start pre-registering at least personally i feel like for my work my everything's become a lot more kind of uncertain you know you have studies that support your hypothesis you have studies that don't support your hypothesis mm-hmm. and no phd student wants to run four studies for their phd and one of them doesn't support it but you still say oh but you know i still think my hypothesis is true because it actually is possible that one of the studies might not actually support my results and it could still be that i'm test- testing a true effect so yeah it's, it's hard I mean, it would basically just need to move towards a world where being transparent about what you found is something that you can do um, without being penalised for it. Um, yeah, because otherwise you just leave out things that... Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's that transparency distort. between confirmatory and exploratory, right? So if you have a two-study paper and the first one is exploratory, the second one's confirmatory, it's really nice. That's kind of what we'd like to be set up. But normally it's just not. Mm. It's advertised as being confirmatory. Um, and I guess this kind of crosses over with their, with the paper's point about p-hacking as well. So this idea that you run multiple analyses to find a significant um, p-value result and then report that, um, whether it's harked or whether it's not, is still an issue because of, at the very least, multiple testing and not mm-hmm. correcting. Yeah, and I think this is the gardener forking path problem, and I think that's such a good metaphor because what you have is all of these decisions that you kind of just, if you you aren't specifying them beforehand, they seem quite natural. Oh, I need to exclude some data. Okay, so I exclude one of them, and then you see, oh, my results are, you know, marginally significant, oh 0.06. And then you're like, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, one of the, maybe I can exclude one more because actually that's been skewing my effect. And then you find a significant result or you decide on how you define your measures and you decide on whether you log transform your data or not. You know, and you only you only transform your data if you don't find any effects because you're not going to bother with like non-normality. <laughs> if, you know, but like this is how, how I would have done it a couple of years ago, being like, oh, it still works. So I won't have to, you know, do a log transformation. Um, and... But if you actually map that back to all these analytical decisions, it's kind of a garden of walking path that each decision is like cause an explosion of possible analytical pathways you could have gone down. And you naturally kind of meandered down the way that get, got your significant result. And looking back, that might seem like the path that you would have always taken. But if you stop pre-registering, you see very quickly that um, you don't know which path you're going to take. Yeah, yeah and we're getting, we're going, I think we're going to go back onto that topic as well in a later week. Um, mm especially those research freedoms, like the, yeah, well, all of the paths that you can take. Um, yeah. yeah. And this then feeds into publication bias um, as the sort of the, the threat to reproducible science that comes up in the, the published literature, this idea that if only significant results can be published, um, which seems to be the case for the most part, or at least that seems to be changing now, which is nice. Um, but if only significant results, or if significant results are more likely to be published mm. at least, then you promote a system where p-hacking or poor quality control that promotes um, significant results or 
or like cool findings, you know, sexy findings, if you like the word or not, serendipitous findings, all these should like sound alarm bells because that means that you, you're putting the finding as the most important thing, which Chris Chambers always says, this is the thing that we can't control as scientists. What we should be able to control is the method. Um, but the, with the actually, rigorous input yeah. rather than the, the sexy output. Yeah. yeah, but the sexy output gets you the paper that gets you into the good journal that gets you a job. So it's like and more funding and, and yeah. more funding, and then that that is naturally kind of a self perpetuating cycle. So publication bias is kind of a key issue, and we'll talk again talk a lot more about incentive structures later on. Well, but I, mean, like, I guess in a way, public, the publication bias is what drives lots of those other um like yeah well the, mm. the threats to the model in in red here in, mm. in that figure right because like it's, it's a, i think without publication bias you wouldn't really need to p-hack or hack in yeah i guess uh, I, you know i think naturally if you could publish uncertain findings or publish a bit messy i hate the word messy because it's such a negative connotation yeah. it should just be real life it should be like <laughs> yeah. unretouched research it's like not that it's like when you we're see models you know yeah like unphotoshopped <laughs> you know and for us who who's supposed to present reality we we aren't supposed to be the glossy magazine with the photoshop models we're supposed to be like real life <laughs> so it's not it's not it's not great that analogy works so well <laughs> like the, the glossy magazines that mm, really i think i probably life. took it from somewhere it, it feels very close to home um, but yeah, it's and I think that's where, for example, kind of Daniel Larkins has been tweeting a lot about this. That so I sit in social psychology and having a JPSP paper is kind of the holy grail, um, if you like it or not. And this is a journal of personality and social psychology, and this is seen as kind of a really good quality journal. And I used to see it as a really good quality journal because they ask for kind of multiple studies that that find your results. So kind of four is probably kind of the really good number. But actually, if you look at the probability of finding four studies in a row that support your kind of true effect, if you are testing a true effect, there's still you know, a very high chance that if you are testing a true effect, that one of those four studies comes out non-significant. But they would naturally never publish like, oh yeah, we've tested this in three studies and three of them found it. And then one found that it, it wasn't there and no top journal would Kind of published that at the moment and yeah and then you get the file draw problem because it also promotes the idea of not including mm. the study that doesn't give you a significant result or p hacking or, it or p hacking it or let's include this moderator because maybe it's just people that were low at the beginning of this and you know <laughs> but it makes sense like looking yeah. back it makes sense and i think this is something that i see time and time again with psychology students is that they come in and they're like oh this all these theories are like super obvious or like these models just make sense, like they make intuitive sense. But you you say actually when you're testing, um, before you have the data, things don't make that much sense. <laughs> um, it's only when you look back that you kind of start putting these stories together. And I think that's where this quote at the beginning of the paper where they say that the major challenge for scientists is to be open and new to new and important insights while simultaneously avoiding being misled by a tendency to see structure and randomness. I think that's that's so key because we do looking back, we're always gonna think that it just made sense. <laughs> yeah. They, um... And then I think building on that probably one of the things that I've noticed with 
especially teaching undergrad students, is I think because of publication bias as one factor and also the way that we teach statistics. If they don't find this significant result, they think they've done something wrong. They think there's a problem with it. And then when you read their limitation sections, they're so often based around this idea that if we change this, then we might find a significant result next time. And to me, that speaks of a failing on the literature and on the way that we teach statistical methods. And how we measure success. You know, it's really sad to see that two or three years into studying psychology, you already think that that's the key thing. But then, <laughs> the actually, it is the key thing. Well, you know, like, which PhD student, which PhD student wants to write a thesis where all the studies are, like, non-significant? You know. Yeah, see mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> I think the important part, though, that you're, yeah, I, that's definitely also how we measure success. Mm. But I mean, the teaching really is so crucial. Mm. So should we go into the res- yes. the, yeah. because, the solution? Because because if because if we don't yeah because if people don't know um, about these things, then how are they meant to um, also evaluate their success uh, successes differently? Yeah. Mm. yeah, no, I think they do a really good job of. Um, oh, that sounds no, that sounds weird. <laughs> but no, I think that. Um, their focus on improving. So the author's me- focus yeah. in this. Yeah. Mm. The, sorry, yes. I'll start again. Yeah. I think that the author's focus on um, improving methodolo- methodologic training here is um, really important because, um, right, so at one point they say the most effective solutions may be to develop educational resources that are accessible and easy to digest and immediately and effectively applicable to research, um, which I, th- I think sounds like a, a really nice and feasible solution. Hmm. Um, like I recently talked to someone um, who basically said, "Well, yes, these are all good things, and this this sounds like um, better science, but it would be very hard to implement in what I'm doing at the moment. And until someone comes along and um, writes something that makes this really easy and straightforward to do, um, they wouldn't do it because that would take a lot of time and would make them less productive. And you know, they sort of coming back to the incentives, I guess. Yeah." Um, so yeah, I think teaching, especially if, um, you know, from PhD level onwards, you might not get that much teaching anymore. It's, mm. it's super important to figure out how to um, properly disseminate these new bits of knowledge, I guess. Yeah, to make it not just accessible, but manageable. And yeah. to sort of alleviate that feeling that, oh no, I now need to learn lots of new stuff. Well, I think it is hard because you don't, like when I started thinking about these things, you don't know where to start and you need somebody to actually help you to say, oh, look at this yeah. or have a, have a, you know, come over to this talk and have a read of this book. And I think, you know, it's very, it's, I think it's very obvious for us that it's not easy and that's why we're doing this podcast as well because like, you know, you couldn't be noticing that something's going wrong, but actually going out of your habits and actually looking, finding that time to improve. It's really hard in a scientific environment where people are breathing down your necks that you need to publish X amount of papers mm. to get a job while probably investing time in learning methods probably help you publish better <laughs> papers in, in yeah. the long run. Well, and I think it's also one of the really nice things about this paper in, in this in particular is that they point out that it's not just that we need to improve methodological training for our undergraduates and our postgraduates we need to improve it for our senior academics as well because ultimately they're the people that are going to be expected to pass it down to the next mm. generation 
And I think that's one of the reasons why there's a huge lag in adopting programming and just adopting all of the approaches that we're going to talk about over the next uh, seven podcasts. <laughs> um, yeah, basically we need a, a huge culture shift. Need a huge culture shift. And With, without burning everything well, down. <laughs> without burning everything down sometimes. Um, but also really promotes this professional development idea, which I think is a really nice point that you mm-hmm. raised in the paper. Um, Should we cover some more of the kind of solutions that might we might not be talking about in the next couple of weeks? Or are yeah. we running out of time? Um, and I'm asking Sam, who's keeping the time. I'm heavily keeping the time. Um, well, I think sort of just still on the um, methodological side of things, um, they're talking about implementing independent methodological support, um, which I think is a really good idea. Um, so, like in in one of the journal cl- in person journal clubs, um, someone even mentioned that um, there are fields um, where the journals are actually offering this independent statistical review, um, which I think would probably help with quite a lot of these problems already. Because yeah. if you have like right, because like as I don't know, as a peer reviewer, you might not always feel like you're com- competent enough to um, to say whether, yeah. whether or it's even when the PI. Mm. Or the, the senior researcher on a paper. Or as the actual well, researcher. But, 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 but yeah, but, but would they say, please have someone uh, in the Well, like, uh, some PIs have statisticians in their lab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, I think it's pretty worth mentioning that, that the statistics department is always a resource as well. I only found out the other week that technically DCOR students in Oxford should have, I think it's an hour, either a term or a year, consultancy time. I think it's an hour in your whole, because they said that they could give me one hour to device and then I'd need to pay 70 quid an hour. Okay. Wow, <laughs> one hour of stats out for your entire... Well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe yeah. I, I understood it wrong. At the very least, be... like most institutions will have a statistics department. Yeah. There yeah. should be people there that you can contact. So mm. I think when, when the argument's made that there's no one around that does statistics, it's a little bit like walk outside your office and ask someone. Yeah. Um, or go on Twitter and ask people. <laughs> you always get statisticians <laughs> telling you what you've done wrong. Um, Key resource, Twitter. Yeah, Twitter is our favorite resource. Um, so we've already talked about pre-registration and we'll talk about that a lot more mm. in um, episode eight or general club eight. Um, maybe it's worth bringing up transparency again because mm-hmm. I think we all quite like the 21 word solution. Yes. Idea, and it's actually one that I would, looking back, I really wish that I had known about this at the start of my DPhil PhD. Um, is this in the paper? No, I don't no, think it's, it is. It's, it's, not, it's, it's actually not. It's, I think it's separate, but they. So, so explain it. Should so we maybe talk about what the twenty-one word solution is as well? I don't, I, I don't know off by heart. Um, um, well, I think it's bas- basically just um, some sort of statement that says, "Well, we." Are, we're reporting everything that we did. Yeah, so any exclusionary yeah. criteria um, for trials participants, so on. Which um, is a great way of um, sort of of making that gray, sp- gray area between fraud and questionable research practice yeah. um, more black and white. And I think it's a reminder to, so for instance, if you're an early career researcher, if you're a PhD running your first study, if you think about this statement that says I've decided all of my hypotheses beforehand, I've report every analysis that I've done, I've 
reported my exclusionary criteria and so on, then you make it really clear to yourself that you need to do these Ooh, things. Oh, I think I found it. I found it. I found <laughs> it in the paper. Um, so it's in box six, bottom of box six in the disclosure statement, saying the Journal of Psychological Science, for ah. example, now requires authors to, and then in brackets, um, in quotations, confirm that A, the total number of excluded observations, and B, the reason for making these exclusions have been reported in the methods section. But I guess that's just exclusions. Yeah, no, no. So the actual um, oh. oh, yeah, it's above. Oh, shit. <laughs> Teamwork. We report how we determined our sample size, all data exclusions, if any, all manipulations, and all measures in the study. So that's the 20, I think that's 21 words. Yeah. I didn't count. But yeah. Well, so the, we the paper it says there. it is. Yeah. So they do actually have it in there. Um, so have a read of that if you're interested. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like transparency, transparency in general is just very important because otherwise, how can you um, truly decide whether what you're reading is um, well? Like, how, how, how can you judge what um, what, what mm. you're reading otherwise? Yeah. So um, they they've got a nice sentence here where, where they just say transparency is superior to trust. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, like we we went to this. We went to this talk last week by uh, Philip Stark, who um, he said sort of, he, he said that um, science at the moment is, is trust me, but it should be show me, um, which I think is a really important point. Yeah. Should we end on the positive note in the conclusion? I just saw that <laughs> Sam had highlighted it that they the authors say the challenges to reproducible science are systemic and cultural. <laughs> now we all cry, but that does not mean they cannot be met. And I guess that's as positive as we can that's be. That's as positive, yeah. And we will yes. be talking about things that are solutions, the things that early career researchers especially can get involved in and can implement into their own practices that should help um, at least make their own research reproducible. And join the revolution. <laughs> join the revolution. Yeah, if you play this backwards, we'll just tell you to burn everything down and, and kill all your supervisors. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> On that note, thank you for listening. Uh, no, thank you for listening. Yeah, and see you next time. See you next time. Listen to you next time. <laughs> We're not listening to them. They're listening to us. <laughs>